Welcome to Software Snack Bites. I'm your host, Shomit Ghosh at Bold Start Ventures, where we partner with Dev First and SaaS founders from the first line of code. Today, we're excited to have Glenn Kacher on the pod. Glenn is Chief Investment Officer and founder of Lightstreet Capital, which is a highly successful firm that's been investing in technology businesses across the public and private markets. In this episode, we're going to cover nearly 30 years of enterprise software learnings, how AI is impacting public markets, and how private and public market investing work together. So welcome to the show, Glenn. Thank you very much for having me. I think we'd like to start just first off with earlier in your career, and you started at Tiger Global. What I'd love to hear is just like, what did you learn from Julian Robertson studying under him? Sure. I'd say the biggest takeaway probably developed conviction. And by that, I mean, you want to out-research your competitors. You want to find the smartest people about an industry and lean on them and talk to them. You want to find out every piece of information possible. And then at the end of that process, which you know is a little bit of a misnomer because it in some ways is never ending, you continue to do your research in it when you're a public market investor, you have to believe in your conclusions until you're proven wrong. So you don't want to go down with the ship by any means, and you can change your mind in the public market. But after you've gone through that process and you've gone as far and as fast as you can go to find the best information, you have to believe what you've learned. It's funny that one of my favorite blogs to read is actually Cloudflare's blog, because they post a bunch of really exciting technical content. And sometimes that teaches you something that you may not know about a different company. So that continuous kind of learning is something that we're all striving for. But certainly, I think at the public markets, you guys have codified processes around that, that we're trying to do much more in the private markets. But one of the interesting things still on Tiger is there's been so many successful investment firms that have spun out from there. And so I guess the question is, was Julian Robertson just really good at picking talents or was he good at training them? Maybe it was a combo of both, but what was his superpower? It's a great question. And I don't know, it's one of those things, it's sort of impossible to separate. I'd say he took both very, very seriously. In terms of finding new potential investors for the team, he was always open to considering a new potential member of the team. Never did he say, oh, well, we've got one person to follow this opportunity or sector. There was always, hey, there might be a new set of companies from a different geography, or there were times that there was even internal competition between couple of analysts that were covering a similar or parts of one sector. But once he found people that he really wanted to bring in, he was very disciplined about putting them through a battery of tests that he developed over the years. And how you did on those tests really mattered as to whether you were hired. And once you're on the job and learning from him and the other investors that were already on the team, you had to continue to perform well. If you did not perform well over time, he might lose confidence in you, and then you would find yourself no longer working there. <laughs> so it was a holistic, ongoing process of selection and training. Sounds like indeed a performance-driven culture. For sure. <laughs> you know, what made you want to start Lightstreet? Because you had a very successful career. You were doing very well at numerous different funds. And then you go and venture off on your own. And if I remember correctly, you didn't even take any outside capital. So you were just kind of fully risk on. What was going through your mind? Why'd you start? I had worked at Tiger between three and four years. And 
was at Stanford Business School in 1998, graduated from there. And I was considering whether or not to go back to Tiger. And I actually ended up joining Integral Capital Partners. So I had I switched from Tiger to Integral in 98. And Integral was run by Roger McNamee, and I was there for 13 years. And so I had these two really wonderful investment experiences with great mentors. And while I was at Integral, Roger and Jim Davidson and Glenn Hutchins and Dave Root created Silver Lake Partners. So I was able to learn from watching them create that fund, as well as Roger later creating Elevation Partners. So I had these great experiences and, and learned from each of them over roughly 20 years and thought, gosh, I could take the combination of those experiences and my views on how to do things best and put it to work at my own firm and seemed like that was about the right time to do it. I was about coming up on 40 years old at the time and seemed like it was then or never and decided to start Light Street. In terms of capital, yes, in the beginning, I managed my own capital for much of the first year because it was my view that it was better to just show people how I would do it rather than tell them without having a fund up and running. And so I went out on my own to start with, with my own capital, and then brought on LPs at the end of that first year. The interesting question that I want to ask you is what was the first investment in the fund and kind of why? Why did you make that investment at the time? The first largest investment. So because, you know, in the public markets on day one, you could buy multiple ideas and, and we did. But the largest investment out of the gate and for much of the first couple of years, I think, was Apple. And it was the iPhone had been out. We started in July of 2010 sort of day one of the actual fund. I started putting it together in the previous six months or a little bit longer. But when I started it, iPhone was fighting with Android and Nokia and RIM to define what the smartphone would be. And the iPad actually came out in April of 2010. And you started to see the iOS product platform and how dramatically that could change computing. And it was really dragging along sales of Macs. And, you know, at the time, I think Apple thought that the iPad would replace the Mac in a lot of instances. I think over time, what's been more proven out is that there's still a significant place in all of our computing experiences for a desktop or a laptop PC. So there's a spectrum of great devices, but really getting that opportunity to be long Apple and at the same time, short Nokia and short RIM as a hedge fund, those were some really terrific first investments. That is, <laughs> I can imagine that's a, that's a hard one to, to repeat, especially with that long, short position there. That's pretty awesome. Yeah. A few years later, I mean, I'd say we were kind of in a similar spot, though, with the emergence of Facebook when they first came public, and that became the largest position replacing Apple. And I think that was kind of an interesting one because the company, literally, as it was coming public, they were cutting numbers or expectations 
for the desktop traffic and mobile was not yet monetized. So there was some nervousness around the rate of revenue growth for Facebook coming out of the box and all had not been proven for mobile revenue generation at that point in time. And so there was a really great bet to be made around the rise of Facebook and its competitor and its competitive set and how they would do versus other companies such as Twitter and Snapchat and others. Regarding that Facebook transition, because I remember like, oh, it was such a buzzy IPO, right? And then, man, it just, it just, you know, kind of tanked the first few days out of the gate. And I think everyone was wondering, like, how will they do this, you know, mobile transition? What will happen to, to revenue, all this sort of stuff? Like, when you're looking at a situation like that, and you're doing your information gathering, how are you getting comfortable? Because it's sort of still unknowable if they'll make this transition, especially in something like consumer. So I'm, I'm curious, how do you think about that? Out of the gate, it was difficult to know. I think that the key research that we did on Facebook it was really over that first year. And as Facebook started to be proven out as the best paid install ad platform, we were able to figure that out by talking to many different mobile application companies and gaming companies about their return on investment from advertising on Facebook in order to get their apps installed. And that was when I think the real money was made in Facebook is when we figured out that that ability of the Facebook platform was going to last quite a long time. Yeah. The dot-com era, you were investing during that time, some crazy valuations, amazing revenue growth as well in some cases, but also clearly looking back in hindsight was a bubble that was being formed. What learnings did you take away from that period? Well, you kind of, you kind of gave me a big one. Valuation discipline was probably the most difficult lesson that you learned. I mean, I think in waves, the multiples expanded and there was still a lot of money to be made and ultimately a lot of money to be lost in those. And so trying to be disciplined in that environment was difficult and the rules were being rewritten quite frequently. So that was the biggest challenge. And we've had to go through those challenges over the years in different cycles. The bigger lesson, though, is more around making sure that you really understand what the business model is. And there was a lot of hand waving and saying, well, if we have this much revenue, we're going to be able to capture economics on it or the metrics around if we have this many people, we're going to be able to capture this much revenue from them. There were a lot of faulty assumptions made. And if you look back to the companies that figured out how to get profitable early, eBay comes to mind in particularly, and Yahoo. So those companies that had higher quality business models and could get profitable earlier turned out tended to have the best business models in the long run. So I'd say that was probably that discipline around identifying the best business models was the biggest takeaway. Some people argue that with cloud computing and you can, you can provision cloud resources very quickly, that almost has lowered the barrier to entry because, for example, if you see a, a fintech company startup, well, then a lot of people will look at that success and be like, oh, you know what? 
let me spin up some resources and go and do the same thing. And so a lot of people argue it's brought about more competition and made that harder for kind of those lasting companies to continue enduring. What are your thoughts about that? Perhaps, but I think building a great software company is much more of a journey than an event. And that journey, if you look at, I think one of the best companies over the years has certainly been Salesforce at taking a pretty narrowly defined product set based on the name of their company being Salesforce and Salesforce automation tool and broadening its addressable market and going deeper into each of those new categories as well as its original category and redefining what the functionality and rebuilding the underlying architecture of the product over time. So I don't think it's really about how it's spinning up and how you start. It's about continuing to get better and address your customers' needs more completely and adopt new technologies and adopt new kinds of thinking along the way. For instance, social media, now we're in kind of this AI period. And so to really be a great software company, you have to be on that long-term journey with your customer base. Yeah. I think one of the most interesting things to me for Salesforce is we talk to a lot of founders and they're all like, oh, Salesforce's UI is is horrible. And I can't believe this. And we can create a much better UI that people use and so on and so forth. And I think the craziest thing is, yes, that UI may, may or may not be terrible in the eye of the beholder, but the distribution mechanism around that UI is almost a function of it being horrible because Accenture and Deloitte and whoever can go in and install it in a verticalized fashion or in a custom fashion, and then they're reselling Salesforce on their behalf. And that distribution engine just seems like such a strong moat that we're trying to see you know, other companies as they start to move from that single product to platform put those dynamics into their business. Because once they can lock in that distribution, it's quite impressive. Yeah. I mean, look, Workday, if you talk to Workday users, they'll tell you they hate that user interface and it's you know terrible. And, and that's much newer than Salesforce. It's just being in the software business for a long time means you develop technical debt and you can't keep up with a little competitor and their brand new looking interface that does a lot less than hopefully your product set does. So I'm not saying you can ignore it. You have to get better all the time. But if you have a product that solves a lot of problems for a lot of different companies, it's a fact of life that you're going to have some of that technology debt. Yeah. I'd love to dive into now the fun parts, which I'm, I'm excited to chat about with you, which is uh, kind of AI's impact on the tech industry broadly. And you look at it from a especially global kind of view. So from what I understand, uh, post ChatGPT's launch, you and the team spent a ton of time kind of unpacking the implications. And how'd you even go about that? What did you do when you're trying to think about, you know, what's going to happen? I feel like you need to dive granular, but then you also need to be able to see the whatever airplane view, right, uh, from up above. So how'd you kind of go about actually forming that view and figuring that out? Yeah, I'd say step one was just really figure out what the technology could do today and what it might be able to do in the near term. And so in order to really boost my knowledge of the industry, I spent quite a bit of time listening to 
experts, PhDs in the field and was able to do that, some of that in person, basically crossed the El Camino on the other side at uh, Stanford, but a good bit of it even just on YouTube and pulling up academic discussions about generative AI to understand how it worked and what it could do. And then branch into meeting with engineering resources at some of the big large language model startups. And so put together an understanding of, okay, here's what the technology is. Here's what it can do. We've known going back many years that the GPU is an extremely important chip architecture for powering artificial intelligence. And that was something that I had learned about over a decade ago and when some early startups were pioneering AI programming on GPUs. And so being a, an investor in the semiconductor sector, we had also tracked and inquired about what was happening with NVIDIA. And then over the years, it was pretty clear that Google was making a migration from machine learning and then into AI and acquiring DeepMind and staying up to date on kind of what they were trying to accomplish there. So we had a pretty good start on understanding what was happening. I just want to say congratulations to you, at least from the 13F, the NVIDIA position was put on before the quarter, the, well, now two quarters in a row, but before the quarter, I would say that really caused the meaningful expansion there. And you guys were well ahead of it. So one thing I'm curious about is, again, you've seen over the history of enterprise software, multiple shifts, right? We talked about Facebook going from desktop to mobile. We talked about cloud databases and kind of on-prem databases that shift, right? From on-prem to cloud and so on and so forth. With AI, how do you think about it? Do you think about it as a platform shift, some sort of enablement shift, or is it something new entirely? Yeah, so definitely it's a new computing architecture. And new in quotes, you know, it's been around and it's been under development, but now it's to the point where it's able to accomplish new things and be commercialized. But it'll take time to get things right. I'd say in my mind, it's a lot like the first version of the internet, the early internet companies. If you think back then, the first sites were kind of brochureware sites. It took a while for e-commerce to even happen, you know, the basics of credit cards and security around credit cards wasn't available. And the server, you know, it was basically a content web for a while. And there was still pictures, but no video. And so a lot of that took quite a bit of time to happen. So I think the biggest thing to understand about AI is that thinking about the end market uses is interesting, but it's unpredictable and we don't know the timing of those things. And in a lot of cases, we don't know if the current applications companies will be beneficiaries or they will be disrupted. So in our view, we have to stay really focused on today, what can really be done with this technology and in the foreseeable time frame. And how do we position our capital to profit from 
the technology's development at this stage. Yeah, I do think it's interesting that so much of what the current instantiation, if you want to call it the fourth wave or fifth wave of AI, whatever we're, we're on at this point, is so much based around data. And in my mind, like, we'd love to back the next Adobe of AI, but that may in fact be Adobe itself uh, because of the data that they have and the stuff that they're able to ship, their Firefly product and things like that. So it's the constant question that we all seem to keep on going back and forth on. But I think you're right where projecting too much to the use case, like who the heck knows, right? We can have our hypotheses, but they could change very quickly. And instead, we just got to focus on who's executing now with the tooling the way it is. If you're a startup investor, your job is to look out that far and make low probability investments with massive potential payoffs, right? So that's, I'm not saying it's wrong for everyone, but as a public market investor, I have a different job. Yep. So maybe first I'll start off with like a, just a broad question. I'm going to make it super broad. So how do you think about AI's impact on the software industry generally? Well, I think the most dramatic near-term change is coming to software development. So if the average person that uses Microsoft's Copilot can develop something in 50% of the time, which is GitHub put that data out there, that means the average software developer using GitHub Copilot is twice as productive. And that's sort of a mind-numbing jump in productivity. So if there are 28 million developers and $1.4 trillion of salary being paid to them, the opportunity to build more product or spend less doing it is there. And so you have to, as a software company, harness that in whatever way you see fit. You know, you can extend that as well. We've always known that software can be tricky to support. And so the cost of customer support has always been significant. So that's another cost center that creates an opportunity for higher margins for software companies over time. So those are a few, you know, the biggest categories just how will the software industry utilize AI? And then the way I think about it broadly, and I apologize if it's high level, but we've all spent years and years utilizing tools to analyze things, you know, tools, software applications. But I think the place that we all want to drive to eventually is where the software really helps you make decisions as opposed to just helps you organize information. And the promise of making better decisions is one that everybody in the universe should want, want to tap into. So broadly defined, I think the applications universe of software companies will deliver a whole lot more value to the end users as time goes on and they utilize and build the next versions of all of their existing solutions. So if I'm reading through kind of what you're saying in one way, I think you're saying, hey, from a margin perspective, below the gross margin line, you're going to have potentially 
lower human cost of capital or at least better leverage on that human cost of capital. So that should improve kind of the below gross margin expenses. And then at the margin side, I imagine right now, sure, costs are going up. But like you're saying, if value is going to increase and accrue to the end users in the future, one, that cost should trend down just as we get out of this GPU scarcity issue. But also two, the pricing should also commensurately grow with that value. So do you almost think of it as like this may help companies both on the gross margin line item and then also kind of at the net income line item become more profitable? We think of it as, look, your R&D and your customer support should, from your OPEX, get a whole lot better. And yet some of that will show up in COGS as well. But if you build better product, then you're going to sell more product over time, get more customers. So that helps the top line. So you get double opportunity, both top line and on the expense lines. So it should be a great opportunity. I think what's more interesting to me is what happens to the customers across all these different industries. And when you start looking at if Microsoft Copilot or GitHub Copilot can make a developer 100% more efficient or increase their productivity by 100%, then the opportunity for in other industries, and you start saying, gosh, there's many different industries that make up a lot of the US economy or the global economy. And if you can get a productivity increase of 10, 20, 30%, and this gets adopted or turned out over the next decade or two, you're going to see the GDP numbers move quite a bit. That's a very cool idea. And frankly, you know, all I'm looking for right now is for some of the San Francisco infrastructure problems to be solved. Maybe if we could help generate <laughs> architecture diagrams or stuff a little bit quicker, that would that would be a big boon to at least the area that we, we live in currently. But some of the market that kind of believe that moats in enterprise software may weaken as a result of AI. And so how do you kind of handicap that potential? Yeah, it's certainly a risk. And it's why we're very careful about looking too far ahead at the applications layer. So we think of the market, of the AI market as being infrastructure, which for us is mostly semiconductors. And certainly there's hardware involved, but the semiconductor portion of that market is most interesting to us. And then we think about there being a set of platform companies. So certainly you would include Microsoft, as well as the other hyperscalers like Amazon, and Oracle and others, and Google would be in there as well. And then lastly, business applications where we've talked about creating new software that helps make decisions for you. So as we look out and the applications are going to take the longest to to be developed and looking at whether it's the growth of the internet age or the PC software development in the 80s and 90s, and even before that, minis and mainframes, it took a long time for those applications to be developed, longer than I think people thought. And things have to shake out, and those companies have to execute. And so if the incumbents execute well, then they'll continue to make their moats strong, and they'll build new applications that are sticky. If the incumbents don't execute well, then startups will win. So I really have to kind of wait and see 
which develops. I mean, if you look at the history, there's always been some great startup winners, but we still have Microsoft, you know, doing extremely <laughs> well true. in this cycle. IBM is still turning out billions of profit a year, mostly on older technology, but their moats still exist. And so we'll see, there'll be some companies that are incumbents that will be successful in the next decade, and there will be others that fail. So, But it's hard to predict that. On IBM, I would say they have the best finance team around, and I'll, I'll leave it at that. But in terms of the other areas that you focus on, so we talked about enterprise software, but you invest in media, e-commerce, consumer, fintech, a number of different areas. I guess like now all of a sudden you have a creator, Mr. Beast on YouTube, and he has this massive YouTube channel. He launches, you know, chocolate and burgers and you know all this sort of stuff, right? Does that change your view on some of those companies where you just can have these individuals that now have the power of AI, have the power of all these things to kind of create these massive businesses? Does that affect how you think about some of those public companies in those areas? Not really. I mean, I think the strong platforms are able to take advantage of celebrities and spokespeople. And so I think they're definitely a layer of value add that they earn the profits that they put out there with their human capital. I don't think they necessarily break down the value of the platforms that they utilize. If anything, it's the opposite. So I don't foresee a world where a given celebrity is likely to develop a massive new platform that just one influencer rules. There's not a lot of evidence that that's the case. That said, music over time, music industry, for instance, you've seen that the artists have been able to get closer and cut some layers out in between them and their fans and create profits from that. But even with that said, most artists, they're not the most profitable thing they do is tour. And that's a pretty low tech endeavor overall. So I don't think they're, it's not like they're creating holographic touring yet. And if they did that, they'd probably need quite a bit of help from a company with hundreds of millions of dollars of R&D behind it. Well, you know, Taylor Swift may prove us wrong just yet, but I think you're certainly correct in that in the case of all of them. So yeah, Donald Trump's social network hasn't exactly uh, <laughs> lifted off. True, true. So final two questions I have for you. One is actually looking internally, just broadly, like the use of LLMs for the business of investing and, and your business where, where you spend so much time. Like, what are things that you get excited about? It's very early for that. I mean, we've just come through a period where we're trying to figure out AI, where it is today, and what's the reality. That's going to be a never-ending process for us over time. We are probably, I think that the quantitative investment community probably will utilize LLMs much sooner than the fundamental investor community. But ultimately, we will be adopting that technology as well. Bloomberg, for instance, is pushing forward and putting LLM tools into its product. And I think that the leading investors will find a way to utilize LLMs to help them get up to speed more quickly. One of the bigger changes that happened over the last 20 years of in our sector has been the usage of alternative data around trying to track companies more in real time as opposed to just looking at the financials as released quarterly. 
by a company that have gone through their financial audit processes and financial closing processes. So, you know, looking at user trends and web traffic and foot traffic, that's been a big change. So I think our industry will adopt LLMs in in probably a similar fashion to the way alternative data was adopted over a 10-year period or so. Yeah. The final question I want to ask you is actually something that I'm just more curious about from your perspective, because it's something that I find hard to balance, which is you have to go into the minutia of a business model. You have to go into minutia of a technology and understand that. But at the same time, then you have to zoom out and take in the macro view. And for a lot of the market, frankly, like we, we just learned uh, interest rates matter a heck of a lot when, when the slope of the curve is, is, is one way or the other. And how do you kind of balance those two in your head? Because you could get the fundamentals completely correct, but then you also need to be aware of this macro thing going on or something that, you know, the founders and the teams aren't even thinking about. So how do you balance that? Yeah, it's extremely tricky. That's the art part of the art and science of investing and trying to figure out what is likely to move stocks over a certain period of time, which of the variables is most likely to be significant or most significant. And there's certainly interaction between those things. But yeah, it's tricky. But some of it is how you structure your portfolio, what your investors are expecting based on how you've said you're going to run your product or your fund. And there's a framework that most of us will adopt over time. And it has to do with how you've positioned your fund from early days and making sure that your investors know what to expect. And it is a very tricky balance and it's the hardest part of our job. It's what makes it fun, right? So (laughs) otherwise it would be boring. Yes, that's correct. (laughs) But Glenn, thank you so much for the time. Really appreciate it. And is there anything that you'd like to highlight or bring up for the audience regarding, you know, what's coming up for Light Street or you personally? I'd say we've covered a lot of the best information. I'd say, I think John Doerr at at Kleiner Perkins back in the dawn of the, the internet days would often say that the internet is underhyped and people would laugh or sort of think he was joking. And in the world of software, I think it's quite likely that we don't fully understand how important AI is going to be in the next 10 years, but it will take some time. And so I think understanding how to balance your long-term optimism with short-term reality and fundamentals is will really pay off. You've got to do both. And we're incredibly excited about the long-term potential for this technology and its ability to really make the economy and the world a better place. So we're tremendously optimistic about the next 10 years in the tech industry. This is how you make a good private investor as well as a public investor. You got the optimism that that, that we've got for, for the future. So I appreciate the time and thanks for all the insights. Really appreciate it. Thanks so much. Appreciate your time.